This sermon, A History Lesson for the Ages, was preached by Derek Overstreet on Sunday, February 13th, 2022 at Sovereign Grace Church. Well, if you got in the text this week, you were reading ahead, uh, or you just glanced down at the text as you opened up your Bible a minute ago, then you know that our text begins with a question. In verse 1 of chapter 7, the question is this, are these things so? Are these things so? Now let's back up a little bit. Stephen is standing before the Sanhedrin, and and you know that the Sanhedrin, because we've talked about it, was the most powerful ruling body in the Jewish world. And the leader of them all, the high priest, he's asking Stephen this question. He wants to know if the accusations against Stephen are true. Are they so? Are these things so that have been brought against you? And Excuse me. And let's just remind ourselves for a moment from last week of what those accusations are. Notice, go back into verse 12 where we were last week, and uh, it says, And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said this, This man, Stephen, never ceases to speak words against the holy place, that is the temple, and the law. For we've heard him. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And by the way, if you're wondering, how come he hasn't addressed verse 15 yet? (laughs) I didn't address it last week, and I'm not going to address it this morning. I'm going to address it next week, or in two weeks when we look at the final section of Stephen's story. Now, that's where we're at. And Luke doesn't tell us exactly what Stephen was saying that fired these people up at the synagogue. But the accusations that we just read there give us a sense. I think what we can safely say in a way that is faithful to God's word is that Stephen was beginning to see the the sacred pillars, if you will, of Judaism. You know, the law, the land, the temple. He was beginning to see those pillars of Judaism through different eyes. He He was beginning to understand the Old Testament through the lens of the cross of Christ. And that changed everything. And right up front, we have this great reminder. Last week, we talked about being students of the word. One of the things in being students of the word is is to understand how scripture is put together. And and Stephen models something for us here in that that we we can never rightly understand and therefore rightly apply the Old Testament unless we view it through the lens of the New Testament. Never approach the Old Testament without the New Testament in the back of your head. The New Testament is what allows us to go to the Old Testament and go, oh, (laughs) that's what was going on. That's what this was about. Well, this is what Stephen, no doubt, was 
doing. And if Stephen, he's, he's at the synagogue, and perhaps he's there and he's serving the widows. Remember, he's one of the guys tasked to, to make sure the needs of the widows didn't go unmet. Perhaps he's doing that. But whatever he's doing, he is engaging with others. And if others, if what he is saying about Jesus and about the law and about Moses and about the temple, if it's true, well, to these people, to the good Jew, he is speaking against Moses. He is speaking against the law. He is speaking against the temple. And therefore, he is speaking against the God of glory. And something has to happen. He has to be dealt with. And so what they do is they see Stephen, they bring him before a kangaroo court. Sounds familiar, just like they did to Jesus. And the high priest asks, are these things so? Are these things so? Now, on the surface, our text this morning, Stephen's response, it, it can seem like a simple history lesson, uh, and it is, but it is a history lesson for the ages. As Stephen uses their history, their Jewish history, to prove that he, not them, is on the right side of redemptive history. And here's the message by the time we're done today it's very simple. Jesus is everything. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is everything. To this end, we're going to find that Stephen highlights key men and key moments in Jewish history. There's going to be two dominant themes that I want you to catch this morning. Two dominant themes in his argument. God's active presence is not limited to the temple. And two, God's people have a history of rejecting him. So let's look at that. Let's see how he gets there. The first point is Stephen's argument. And again, he's going to highlight key men and key moments in Israel's history. And the first one is Abraham and the promise. Notice verse 2. Stephen responds by saying, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. We know the story of Abraham. If you don't, I encourage you to read Genesis 12 through 25 this week. 
But you know who did know the story of Abraham? The high priest and his counsel. Stephen is not telling these men anything new. He's not telling them anything they don't already know. And in a nutshell, Stephen says that God called and promised Abraham that through his children, beginning with Isaac, that the world, the nations, would be blessed. God would, would bring them into a land of their own. It's the promised land, the holy land, the, the land God would bring his people into when he delivered them out of Egypt. As Stephen mentions in verse 4, it's the very land this kangaroo court is taking place in. And God sealed this covenant with Abraham through circumcision, the covenant mark that, 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 that the patriarchs themselves carried. But look back up at verse 2, because there's something that's really easy for us to just gloss over here. Stephen begins by saying, the God of glory appeared to Abraham. Now, just pause there for a moment. That, that, that description meant something to these men. The God whose glory went before his people in the Exodus. The God of glory that was shown to Moses on the mountain. The God whose glory filled the temple that Solomon built. In other words, Stephen says, the God of glory, the God that you claim to love and worship, the one who you believe is the creator of all things, the one who you believe is, fills the temple with his majesty and glory, this God appeared to Abraham, notice verse 2, when he was in Mesopotamia, not the Holy Land, not the Promised Land, not Israel, Mesopotamia, a foreign land, modern-day Iraq. And the point is that God's glorious presence to his people didn't begin with a Jew in Israel. It began with an Iraqi in a foreign land. That's, that's what we see here with Abraham. Don't gloss over verse 2. What's, we know the story of Abraham, but, but Stephen wants them to understand this in God's holy presence that you claim can only be found in the temple. Let me tell you where and who it began with. A foreigner in a foreign land. And then he moves to Joseph and the famine. Notice verse 9. He says, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt. Notice all the times Stephen mentions Egypt. 
who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out the fathers on their visit. And on the second visit, Joseph himself made Joseph himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and, his fa- he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and, the, and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there was a, arose another king who had not known Joseph. If you don't know the story of Joseph, I encourage you to go read this week Genesis 37 through 50. You know who did know the story of Joseph? The high priest and the council. They knew that Joseph was a man chosen and used by God. And here's where the second theme comes in. They also knew that Joseph was rejected by God's people, by his own brothers, sold into slavery. Stephen says they were jealous of the favor that Joseph had. And so they sold him into slavery. He was chosen by God, but he was rejected by God's people. You remember the grand statement that Joseph, when it all came out, who he was, and he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. In one verse, the man God chooses, the man his people reject. In the midst of this famine, Joseph gave land to his family. The land was in Egypt, a foreign country. But yet this land became a place of refuge. It became a place of salvation for God's people because had Joseph, had God not provided that land through Joseph, guess what would have happened to Joseph's family? They would have died in the desert at the hands of the famine. And guess what? That's the end of the story of God's people. So this land was a profound expression of God's goodness and mercy. These men had rejected his chosen and yet God is merciful to them and provides land where they can live and thrive. And as verse 17 says, that they can increase and, and be multiplied. They were doing so well that, that the incoming Pharaoh said, whoa, we got a problem. Thus they became enslaved for 400 years, just as God had told Abraham. But the land was in Egypt. God's favor was shown in Egypt. 
eight times, Stephen, Stephen wants us to know this happened in Egypt. Pay attention to repetition as you read your Bible. There's a point there. (laughs) And the point that he's making is that God was with Joseph in Egypt. God gave Joseph wisdom and favor with the Egyptians while he was in Egypt. God's provision of grain for his people, which meant life, was in Egypt. It was in Egypt, not the promised land, that God's people increased and multiplied, and God's covenant promise to Abraham lived on. God's presence was in Egypt. I know, Sanhedrin Council, that you think God's presence is about a country, about the temple, but let me tell you something. You know the story of your history, and God's holy presence was in Egypt with his people. And then, just as it was in Egypt with Joseph, now Stephen draws our attention to a man named Moses. And Moses was a hero in the Jewish world. Notice verse 17, as he now draws attention to Moses and the Exodus. But, but at the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there rose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. And he dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him, brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and deeds. Again, notice Stephen highlights God's choice and favor. The, the, the drumbeat of, of, his, of his argument is God's presence is not limited, and God's people have a re- history of rejecting his chosen men. And so we see that again here. Verse 20, Moses was beautiful in God's sight, God's favor. Then immediately in verse 21 through 22, we we read that Stephen makes it clear that what? Moses was not brought up in the promised land. He wasn't brought up in a tabernacle or a temple. He wasn't brought up according to Jewish ways. He was raised by Egyptians. He was raised by Egyptian royalty in Egypt. He was learned and he was accomplished in the Egyptian ways. The point, a man raised, educated, and groomed in Pharaoh's family, in Pharaoh's household, was the man that God chose to deliver Israel. And then once again, immediately, we see God's people reject the man that God chooses to redeem. Look at verse 23. He keeps telling the story. When Moses was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers. 
the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. And he, pay attention to this, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? Verse 27, but the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Who made you, Moses? Who chose you to be a ruler over us? You know what the answer is? God did. Verse 25. Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. God chose Moses as the instrument of salvation for his people. In a sense, their redeemer who would deliver them from the bondage of slavery. And the people didn't understand. They didn't see it. And so once again in the history of Israel, they rejected God's chosen deliverer. If you don't know the story of Moses and the Exodus, read the book of Exodus. I don't want to sound like a broken record, but you know who did know the story of the Exodus? The high priest and the council. And they would have known that Moses, after what happened in Egypt, that he fled to Midian, which for the record is a long way away from the promised land. It's a long way away, and, and, and I realize that, well, yeah, the tabernacle wasn't established yet, yes, but you get the point. He fled to another foreign land. And then years later, Moses finds himself on a mountain called Mount Sinai, and this happened. Look at verse 30. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look. There came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. The most significant event in Israel's history, the Exodus, began right here. It began right here. Not in the tabernacle, not in the temple, 
not in the promised land, like Abraham and Joseph, Moses was in a foreign country somewhere on the peninsula, somewhere on the Arabian Peninsula. And yet, the ground was holy. Because of where the ground was, there was nothing ornate, there was nothing majestic, just dirt and rock and desert bushes. And yet, God says, Moses, take off your sandals. The ground you are standing on is holy because of God's presence. Listen, Stephen, Stephen is being intentional. He is, he's giving brief summaries of major events. But notice the theme. He keeps, when he wants to share details, it's about one or two things. It's about God's people rejecting God's deliverer, or it's about the place where things are taking place. And Stephen wants them to see, in particular here, God is not limited to space and time. You can't put him in a box. You can't build a temple and then shut the doors and say, there's your dwelling place, God. He is not limited to space and time. His glory is not limited to a building. There is no magical place that you can go to to experience the presence of God. Not a tabernacle, not a temple, not a country, not a church building. God, it's God who is holy, and therefore it's God who makes people holy. This is so important for us because I call it the Sunday best syndrome. We know the term, right? Put on your Sunday best, and okay, in one sense that's very innocent. And, but when you think about it, that's a great illustration of the heart, isn't it? We can do that. We put on our Sunday best. That is, I'm going to church, the place to be holy, the place to look holy, because God's presence is there. And we can begin to kind of live with this mentality that, that there is kind of a magical place, and there is you know, a way that I can kind of position myself for that magic. And we come here on Sunday mornings, and and, and, and it's a holy experience, if you will. But then we leave here and we live as if God doesn't exist Monday through Saturday. Because he's not really with us. And we would never say that, but functionally, isn't it true? It's easy for us to live that way. And it's easy to just pass over the fact that the place that God says this is holy ground was in a foreign country somewhere in Arabia far from the promised land and it was holy ground for one reason God's presence 
You see what he's trying to do? For men who think it's all about the temple. Now, in verse 35 through 38, Stephen continues to emphasize how the powerful presence of God was with Moses outside the land and before the temple existed. In verse 36, he says, Moses did wonders and signs. Where? He says, in Egypt, and at the Red Sea, and in the wilderness for 40 years. He goes on in verse 38 to say that Moses received from God and delivered to the people living oracles. That that is the law at Mount Sinai. So he reinforces the presence of God can't be limited. And then he gets back to their rejection of Moses. Remember, Moses was the man in Israel. Moses was the man in the Jewish world. And yet they rejected him. In verse 35, he says, this Moses, whom they rejected, that is your father's. In verse 39 through 41, he says, our fathers refused to obey Moses, but thrust him aside for an idol, an idol that, that they crafted, they created a calf, a golden calf that they made sacrifice to and ultimately worshiped at the work of their own hands. That this, this golden calf was the highest uh, moment of their rejection and uh, of Moses uh, and ultimately their rejection of God. When they rejected Moses, they rejected God. When they rejected God's chosen one, they rejected God himself. When we reject God's goodness, his mercy, his provision, whatever form those things may take, we, we, we are rejecting God himself. That always for something else, of course. That's what idolatry is, is replacing God with something else, desiring something, desiring something that's created over the glorious creator. That, that's the heart of idolatry. Now, verse 42, Stephen says God saw their idolatry. And he turned them over to it. He then, notice in, in verse, uh, in verse um, 43, 42 and 43, uh, Stephen is actually quoting from Amos 5 there, a word, a word that came long after the golden calf. But Stephen, I think, interjects it here because Stephen is applying it to their situation for for if no other reason to show that this, this theme, this pattern of, of rejection and idolatry, that it would be Israel's pattern. As you continue to read the Old Testament, that's what you see time and again. As the, as the great prophet Jeremiah said my, my, in Jeremiah 2, my people, my people have committed Two great evils. They've turned from me and turned to broken cisterns that cannot say. That would be the pattern for Israel. This golden calf, though it may take many forms over the centuries, that would be, in a sense, their MO. And then finally, he 
he highlights David and the temple. In verse 44, Stephen describes the transition from the tabernacle to the temple. Of course, both central in Israel's life as God's people. The temple was central. The tabernacle was central. The Holy of Holies was in the tabernacle, the presence of God's glory. The temple became the epicenter of one's relationship with God. But notice, but notice what Stephen says about the temple. He, he mentions David, and, well, let's just read it in, in the, just before verse 46. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the most high, catch, yet the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophets say. And then he quotes from Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of a house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Stephen acknowledges David's desire to build a temple, a place of worship. That was David's heart. Let me build you a temple, God. David had some serious problems. And God said, your son's going to build it. And it was built. At the coronation, it was filled with the glory of God. But Isaiah 66 is a reminder that it was never meant to be a box for God. He immediately acknowledging God's provision and the temple and the desire, he immediately says, yet, yet God does not dwell in a house made by hands. Pay attention to that language, made by hands. We just heard that, didn't we? Up in what? The golden calf where people rejected Moses turned from God and created something with their own hands and worshiped it. And that is what has become the issue in the Jewish world. The temple had become, well, it had become a place of idol worship. You know, according to uh, chapter 6, verse 14, what we talked about last week and just read. A big reason Steve is on, Stephen is on trial is because of what he said Jesus said about the temple. The temple had become a symbol of empty religion. Go live how you want to live as long as you go to the temple and make your sacrifices. Bring your bird. Bring your goat. Make your sacrifice. You're good. Now go live how you want to live. It, it just, the temple had become a simple symbol of empty religion, a form really of self-worship. It was this massive, ornate golden calf in the shape of a building. 
It represented the works of their hands. It's not a coincidence that Isaiah 66, in referring to what will you build for me? Well, I do not dwell in a house made by your hands. It's no accident that that's the same language surrounding the golden calf. No wonder these guys are upset. I'll tell you what, you touch my idol, I'll get upset too. I know if I poke at your idol, you won't be happy with me either. Especially if your entire worldview is wrapped up in that idol. <laughs> Especially if your whole identity and purpose of existence is wrapped up in that idol. Do you see what Stephen is doing here? He's brilliant. <laughs> he hasn't even mentioned Jesus yet. <laughs> He's saying, guys, it's not about Moses. It's about the one he himself said would come after him and said, now listen to him. He's saying it's not about a specific land. It's about the presence of a holy God that can't be contained. And by the way, it's for the Jew and the Gentile. He says it's not about the law. It's about the one who came to fulfill the law on our behalf because we could never fulfill the law. And it's not even about the temple made with human hands. It's about the living temple who is the radiant and glorious presence of God. The temple that you have rejected. The pattern continues. God chose Jesus as your deliverer. And like the deliverers before, you have rejected him. It's not about these other things. It's not about the sacred pillars of Judaism. It's about Jesus. Jesus is everything. That's his argument. Now look at his accusation. Verse 51 he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. The irony is dripping here. Stephen's audience, listen, Stephen's audience saw themselves as the faithful ones. Okay? And so one of the things that, 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 that probably was going on is as they heard about their fathers, as they listened to Stephen and heard about how their fathers rejected God's chosen one, Moses and Joseph, and as they heard that, as they heard about the golden calf, I think they would have been going, yep, 
He's right. Our fathers blew it. They rejected God's chosen. They worshipped a golden calf. They, they worshipped the work of their hands. And then Stephen says, that's you. Imagine. What? what, what? Stephen says, you are guilty. Just like your fathers. I'm not the one rejecting God. I'm the one on trial for rejecting God, but I'm not the one rejecting God. You are. In fact, you are worse than your fathers because you actually betrayed and murdered the righteous one, the one whom all God's chosen leaders ultimately pointed to and in some ways were types of. You rejected Jesus, God in the flesh, the one who your whole history and your entire purpose has been pointing to and is wrapped up in. What your fathers did with the golden calf was disgraceful, but it pales in comparison in what you have done and what you continue to do to Jesus. So he says, you are stiff-necked. This means you refuse to see the truth. You are so locked in on the temple and the law, you can't see what this is about. You're stiff-necked. He says, you're uncircumcised in your heart. You don't understand truth? He says, you continue to resist the Spirit, and therefore you reject God himself. Here's what he's really saying. You aren't God's people. What? Wait a minute. I come to the temple every day. I keep the law. You've rejected God's chosen. You hung him on a tree. And now you want to persecute and silence all who speak in his name. You are idolaters worshiping the works of your hands. Listen to Jesus. I, I, think, I think Steve probably said, listen to me. I'm telling you the way. I'm telling you the truth. Listen to those that are preaching Jesus in the synagogue, listen to those who are coming around and talking about the supremacy of Jesus and making the connections with the Old Testament. Hear the gospel and turn to Jesus. Now their response, well, we'll look at that in two weeks. Spoiler alert, it wasn't good. The question right now is this. How will you respond to truth? How will you respond to the truth of the righteous one, Jesus Christ, the one that all of history points to, the one that all of history is wrapped up in, the one who is God in flesh, who came and took your blame, 
who bore your sins on his shoulders and absorbed, absorbed the full white-hot wrath of a holy God so that you could be accepted through his rejection, not of man, but of his Father. How will you respond to truth? I believe the Spirit is calling us to respond in two ways. We're going to wrap up with this. First, assurance. Assurance. Every believer has moments and even seasons of doubt. Am I really a Christian? You ever been there? Am I really a Christian? Because I don't feel like it. Some days I'm pretty convinced I'm not. There are times when we feel like we don't desire God at all. There's a reason why John Piper wrote the book, When I Don't Desire God. And in these moments, our search for assurance oftentimes only, only frustrates the issue. Maybe you can identify with this. We tend to measure our goodness. Don't. Saved sinners still sin. That's why we needed Jesus. That's why we need Jesus. We, we tend to search for a feeling. Don't. Feelings are fickle. And there are times when my affections are misdirected. Doesn't mean I'm not a Christian. We can compare ourselves with others. Don't. Salvation is not horizontal, it's vertical. Instead, ask yourself this. Is my faith and hope for this life and the life to come in the person and work of Jesus Christ? And if the answer is yes, have assurance. You are on the right side of history because you need nothing else. You have Jesus. How you live and how you feel, it's not irrelevant, but it's the fruit of salvation, not the basis. And that's where we can get mixed up. The basis is the righteousness and the sacrifice of Christ on your behalf. Not going to the temple every day. You go to the temple, you come here because your heart is so filled with wonder and gratitude that you're a sinner saved by grace. How can anything or anyone keep you away from gathering with other sinners saved by grace to learn more about your glorious Savior and to praise him? So if that's you this morning, repent of your unbelief and rest in God's promise that Jesus is enough. 
See, that's the ultimate basis for your assurance. God said. Romans 10. God said, Jesus is enough. You don't need a temple. You don't need rituals. You don't need to be the perfect law keeper. Do you know Jesus? I think there could be one other category here. Assurance and then warning. John Calvin said that the heart is an idol factory, and he, he's right. He was right. And every believer in this room struggles with worshiping the created instead of the creator. It's inevitable because though, though our sin, the penalty for our sin has been paid, the presence of sin in a fallen world is still very real. And so we do. We all reject God and resist his spirit for the little golden calves in our lives. We all can live with a with a temple mentality. Whatever it is for you, I encourage you to yield to the merciful and gracious sanctifying work of the Spirit. But there are some here, and this is who I really believe the Spirit wants to speak to, there are some here who are genuinely stiff-necked. In a room this size, it's inevitable. Your golden calf is as massive as the temple in your life. And I'm not going to try and guess what that may be. You know what it is. And more importantly, God knows. God knows. It's that area that your friends have graciously challenged you on. It's that area your friends have graciously challenged you with truth and have encouraged you with the gospel but you have refused to listen. You continue to chase. You continue to, to find your purpose and your meaning. Whatever that might be, you, you have become stiff-necked. I think the Spirit of God this morning wants to say, today, hear the Spirit. Humble yourself. Acknowledge your sin. Repent and receive, embrace, stand in the forgiveness that flows from the blood of Jesus at Calvary. God, God is patient. That's, a, that's another theme here that we didn't get to, right? Time and time again, God is patient. He is merciful, but he will not be mocked. And as Stephen mentioned here, there are times where he may even give people.